This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Last week, Pew Research Center published survey data from 2018 and 2019 on religion and Americans. Here's how their write-up of this data was framed. In U.S., decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. I'm going to read some of Pew's summation of its numbers. But before I proceed, I just wanted to clarify one thing, which is that when we say the word none, it refers to someone who is not religiously affiliated. The changes underway in the American religious landscape are broad-based. The Christian share of the population is down, and religious nuns have grown across multiple demographic groups. White people, black people and Hispanics, men and women, in all regions of the country, and among college graduates and those with lower levels of educational attainment. Religious nuns are growing faster among Democrats than Republicans, though their ranks are swelling in both partisan coalitions. And although the religiously unaffiliated are on the rise among younger people and most groups of older adults, their growth is most pronounced among young adults. We wanted to talk about what this new Pew report says and what it means for American evangelicals at large. It is Wednesday, October 23rd. This is Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, Editor-in-Chief. All right, Mark, I would love us to do a gut check and for us to have a chance to kind of react. When I first read it, it was, okay, haven't we heard that before? What else is new? But then I started reading, a number of people decided they wanted to comment on this report, and the way they were talking about it struck me that maybe there was something new in the report or something more dramatic about the decline. So I thought, frankly, it would be a good conversation for quick to listen to find out, is this just the same old, same old, or is there something unique about it? And then overall, how do we understand this phenomenon? One thing I find interesting is that in my experience reporting on some of this type of stuff, when people have said nuns, it has seemed that many people have thought that nuns are more likely to be white, more likely to be college educated or professionals. And so they kind of make all these assumptions about people based on those types of characteristics. But that does not really seem to be the case here as referenced by this paragraph that I just said, where it seems like broad swaths of Americans are leaving, I guess, their childhood faith or really owning up to the fact that they didn't maybe have one ever. I'm with you, though. I was also kind of just like... I know Christianity is declining. <laughs> well, the, the more interesting stat was it was just a confirmation of what a lot of pundits have been saying as the Democratic Party has become less and less interested in things religious. Oh, but I was taught that it wasn't even Christian from a young age, though. Sometimes when people say stuff like that, I'm like, I didn't even know that Christians were there. Like, because, <laughs> because it was so this idea that yeah. Christians running Republicans was so strong. Right, With all due right. respect to the black church and what I know right. now, that was exactly. kind of scene. All right, so who's our guest to kind of dissect this Our stuff? guest is Daniel Silliman, and he is the news editor of Christianity Today. We thought this would be a good opportunity for our listeners to be introduced to someone who's new on the staff. He uh, also teaches humanities and writing at Milligan College. He has a doctoral degree in American studies from Heidelberg University in Germany. He was one of the two people I thought on staff that could actually intelligently help us understand the shape of American religious life, as he's been a close student of American religious life for some time now. His doctoral dissertation specifically was on the history of best-selling evangelical novels, which he is turning into a book whose working title is Fictions of Belief, Book Markets, Bestsellers, and the Changing Shape of Evangelicalism. And I'm particularly interested in that because uh, someday when I retire, I'm hoping to write some fiction. So I need to find out what what to do to make it successful. And Daniel, you're going to help me do that. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I'm sure that's exactly what you want to be doing is advising Mark on his fiction on already. The next, on the future yeah, Left Behind series. It's really a how-to about best-selling <laughs> Just instructional advice for Okay, Mark, yeah. good. Awesome. Forthcoming bestseller. Daniel, well, we are delighted you can be here. One thing I thought I should also point out about Daniel is that he has spent a lot of time in the CT archives. And Daniel, I 
am crossing my fingers that you'll also find a way to bring up CT of the past in our conversation. <laughs> I, can, I can do that. I yeah, we'll see what we can do. It should be hard. Not in a way of being navel gazing, but just as a point of reference, of course. I mean, it is a major, if you go back, you know, some of these numbers we need to put in the broader historical context, which includes the Cold War and the history of CT is, is part of the religious response to the Cold War. So, yeah, we can get there. So for our lucky listeners, I did not read any of these stats out loud in my summary, but no guarantees that that will be the case as we get into some of this type of stuff, especially as I ask you my first question, Daniel, which is what surprised you about this most recent batch of data from Pew? As you guys said, the report isn't shocking. It's not totally different than what we've seen before. It's just, it has more to do with a continuation of trends. You know, the numbers that most of us have been using from Pew were getting old enough at this point that there was some question about just, are, is this still right? Are things still moving in the way that we think they are? So this this report expands what we know and it, it extends what we know. It kind of updates our information, but it doesn't dramatically complicate the picture of the last 20, 30 years of religious trends. I was actually asking Mark when we were talking about this, like to what extent, though, is this the type of piece, like the global warming piece that comes out all the time that's like, actually, the polar ice caps are melting faster than we thought they were going to. Is it is it that type of thing at all? It didn't seem from from my look that it was a lot more dramatic, but it's not that it's happening so much faster than it was, but it but it is still sizable. So the big the big numbers are that the percentage of Americans identifying as Christian in the last 10 years has dropped by 12%. So in 2009 there were 12% more Americans than today saying that they're Christian. And then in the other direction, the number of America, percentage of Americans saying they have no religion or no affiliation, uh, the nuns, has gone up 5%. Just to clarify, uh, 5% or 12% or percentage points? Percentage points. Sorry. Okay. No, that's yeah, fine. It's gone down 12 percentage points and up five percentage points. You know, we've, we've seen this sort of larger story about the rise of the nuns, which we should talk more about what that means. The other stat that stuck out to me was the statistic about self-reported church attendance. It's gone monthly church attendance, self-reported monthly church attendance has gone down nine percentage points in the last decade, which is interesting. So just one, maybe we'll get into this in a bit, and if you want to hold off, people are identifying as Christians has dropped by 10 percentage points. People identifying as nuns has risen only five. What's happening to the other five, or am I mixing up my statistical categories (laughs) at this point? I mean, there is an increase in non-Christian religions, Muslims and Buddhists, both, I think, as well as some Hindus. But the five percentage points is in relationship to the previous number, not to the total. Yeah, okay. That's what I figured, yeah. It's it's really hard to talk about in class I would start writing on the board at this point. It's hard right. to talk about some of these numbers <laughs> in totally yeah. with words. But yes. So one of the things when I read part of Pew's summary earlier that they talk about is all these different demographics where the nuns are increasing. And I was wondering, Daniel, if any of those different demographic groups are surprising to you or any of them that you want to highlight in particular? So the number among millennials, there are sort of more nuns among younger generation. There's a real there's a real age difference in the decline of religion and younger people are more likely to disaffiliate than older people. So the the change in millennials, which they're defining as anyone born between 1981 and 1996, that's the percentage point change has been 13%, which is pretty noticeable. It's not interesting. I mean, I think the story with race and college education is kind of interesting because it doesn't map onto a lot of other things. So college graduates and non-college graduates, we don't see a huge difference in disaffiliation. White and black, we don't see a huge difference. Non-Hispanic and Hispanic, like these are all happening sort of roughly the same. So you're seeing kind of a culture-wide disaffiliation that doesn't break down by race or education. I think that's like really worth noting and surprising too. I mean, in my experience, usually there's a pretty big gap when it comes to those things. With a lot of other things, yes. 
justice, you know, race and, and education are huge predictors in American life of all sorts of things, but not how religious you are. It would incline one to think that there's something in the water we're drinking and the air we're breathing, maybe something along the lines of Charles Taylor's A Secular Age is finally taking root in America more than it has been. I don't know. That's pure speculation, of course. I tend to think there are sort of two larger historical movements happening one is that we're comparing both in our numbers and our sort of cultural memory to the 1950s. Like that's kind of the backdrop of normal in just the way that we talk about things and sort of common memory. But it turns out in the longer in the longer horizon of American history, the 1950s were kind of aberration. They were very, very religious, you know, in the success coming off of World War II, the religious revivals, including all of the stuff that Billy Graham did. America just had this kind of flush of confidence and success that came at the same time as this uh, new interest in in religion. Part of that, of course, is, is, as we said earlier, the context of the Cold War and the fact that America was increasingly defining itself as opposed to the Soviet Union, which, of course, was atheistic. So you have godless communists versus godful America. And I think what happened there, and a lot of the historical research bears this out, is that like nominal religion really, really rises in America at this time. The pressure to say that you're a church member uh, is really intense. Evangelicals, of course, feel pretty divided about this. On the one hand, historically, white evangelicals were quite happy to see America take religion seriously and be thinking about religious things and talking about the Bible, talking about church. But at the same time, there's a pretty sharp critique of nominal Christianity. But if you look at the longer trend, like when does this stuff change? It really starts changing in the early 90s. So I, I'm less likely to think that this is a kind of 500-year history from the Reformation to Walmart in the way that Charles Taylor does, and more likely to think that like the political landscape of America has changed in a way that's like shifted, especially nominal religion, and especially our sense of what it means to be a good American as someone who says, I go to church, I believe in God. Probably saw a precursor to this pastoring a church in California before I be- entered the world of journalism. Certainly by the 1980s in California, nobody went to church because of the socially acceptable thing to do. You you went to church because it meant something. You might not be a full-fledged Orthodox Christian because there were people in my congregation that were searching and had what I considered aberrant beliefs, but they were there because they were searching. (laughs) That phenomenon, I think, is we're seeing more of that across the country. When I was talking to my students in Germany about religion in America, one statistic that I would come back to is actually from the two studies, one in 93 and one in 98, by this guy named Mark Chaves, who's a pretty well-respected sociologist. And he looked at church attendance in one county in Ohio. And if you did a poll, you found that people in this county, about 40% of them said they went to church on the previous Sunday, if you just asked. And then he thought, well, let's go count. And so they went around to churches and counted how many people were in church on a given Sunday. And they found that it was about half. It was about 20% in this one county. And they did it twice and came up with roughly the same numbers. And that always just really stuck out to me. Like whenever I'm sitting in church and look around, I think for every person I'm seeing, there's one other person who's lying about being here. There's one other person who's telling a pollster, no, yeah, totally. I went to church. Wow, Daniel, that's exactly what you're supposed to be thinking about at church. (laughs) It is. Yeah. I feel good about myself for showing up just like you're supposed to. Exactly. Yes. No, but I think like we've had in the history of this country, like a recent history where religiosity has been very prized and belonging to these groups, whether it's the Elks or your local, you know, bowling league or having a denominational affiliation, like that's been really prized. And it just doesn't seem to matter to people anymore, at least not in that kind of abstract way. You know, and that's why I was really interested at the the monthly attendance or self-reported monthly attendance has gone down nine, per, nine percentage points in this new pupil. But among 
the smaller group of people who say that they're Christians, the declining group of people who still identify as Christians, monthly church attendance has only gone down by one percentage point. So I think we're seeing like just a broad change of religiosity, which will change things for white evangelicals. But as an evangelical, it might not be a dramatic change in the number of people who like have some fervent belief or some active church life. Wow. So many threads of stuff to get into from there. A little bit of a dump, but yeah. I know. Well, we, I mean, I'm fully prepared to explore a bunch of these. Before I get into them, I do want to talk a little bit about the nuns for a second, since that seems to be the big category that Christians are kind of juxtaposed against. First of all, how long has it existed as a category? And is nuns, should we see nuns as a synonym for atheists or agnostics? I know I didn't say that at the beginning, but I'm curious how people do end up actually mapping their religion religious beliefs. I mean, what are some common misconceptions about the demographic? First of all, it's a category created by pollsters. At some point in, I think Gallup did it first, but at some point in the 90s, pollsters just made it an option to say none of the above. So it used to be in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, Gallup would call you and say, what religion are you? And then they would list Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Buddhist, etc. And there was no, I'm not religious option available. Really? Um, yeah, so 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 we, basically so, they inflated their numbers by not giving <laughs> not giving people an option. Yeah, and this is of course you know when you get into the weeds of polling, it's always the case that pollsters are kind of creating the categories. You don't ask people, if you don't give people any categories, you get a much weirder set of answers than if you tell them, you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, you're a Protestant, aren't you? So so pollsters just realize, wow, it's weird that we're not giving people a non-religious option. And as soon as they started asking the question, there were people that liked that, that option. Pew actually breaks them out, though, and separates atheists and agnostics from nothing in particular. So they're not the same. I forget the number, I think. Okay, so atheists are 4% of American adults, which is not nothing. It's up from 2% 10 years ago. And agnostics, people who say they don't know whether or not God is out there, is at 5%, up two percentage points from from 3% a decade, a decade ago. But 17% of all Americans are nothing in particular. So, so this larger category is nothing in particular. The recent studies have shown that this group of people is actually quite, they're, they're more likely to be called spiritual but not religious. They look a lot like sort of new age stuff, people from the 60s and 70s. There's kind of unbundled spirituality or eclectic spirituality. Oprah? So they might, they might, yeah, Oprah, they might believe in angels and Jesus, but also crystals and tarot. It's not, it's not that they believe you know, in a materialistic universe, just like Nietzsche and Darwin until we die. It's more a just like grab bag of individualized, personalized spirituality that they think can help you live a better, fuller life. But it's something that you don't really do in a community. You do you do by yourself. Some of it is fairly mainstream activities too, like praying, for instance, which comes out. And would you say, I think it's fair to say that many of them do believe in God as well. I think most of them believe in God of some sort. Yeah. We should not we should not understand the nuns to be to have no religious beliefs. What they have is no religious affiliation. They don't want to be connected to or defined by a group. They want to decide for themselves what practices they're going to be involved in and what beliefs they're going to embrace, which, you know, that's also true of a lot of people in churches who hold the creedal confession of their particular church, maybe a little loosely. It's not it's not a totally different impulse than a lot of us feel in our Christian churches and our Christian lives. This seems to relate to a phenomenon. Our anti-institutional prejudice in American life has, has only increased over the last few decades. And so we don't think of institutions, the Roman Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church. We don't we don't naturally identify with those anymore anyway. 
Even if we're a part of those churches, we might say, well, I'm a Presbyterian, but I'm actually evangelical and my church isn't. We narrow it. We don't tend to identify with the institution. Often we identify ourselves against the institution. And I'm wondering if this is just part of that phenomenon. I think the answer is yes. It's hard to know how much is that and how much this always existed and we just missed it because we weren't asking in our polling questions. But yeah, as, as Americans become more individual and also more mobile has to do with the fact that we move so much. And we there's a book a couple of years ago called The Big Sort, talking about how we sort of reshuffle ourselves across the country and break a lot of those connections, communal connections that we might have had in previous generations, that a lot of people's religious experience and religious identity becomes just much more individualized and anti-institutional. Individualized and, and going along with the moving part, you really do have to work to opt in a lot more. So I, I think sometimes it becomes there's a, a lack of intentionality about pursuing some of the things that you took for granted growing up. And, you know, you move and you're, it's often the case that people think, well, I'll eventually reaffiliate, but like, I'm only going to live in this town for a couple of years. So it's not, it's not that important to me. And then of course, our institutions are changing. So, you know, a lot of Protestant churches don't use the denominational name and emphasize the sort of formal parts of the institution in the way that they used to. And part of that's to attract people who don't care about the denominational names or are suspicious of, you know, the institutions. But then it also just continues the the trend and increases the the pattern. So you get people who've been going to a Baptist church for a decade and don't know that it's a Baptist church and they move to Mission another accomplished town. for that Baptist church. <laughs> yeah, they move to another town and they think, well, we want a church like that one. I don't really know where to look. There's a bunch of trends here that all kind of reinforce each other. Well, we've been discussing some of the common explanations for a decline in these numbers. It seems like, among others, the emergence of an actual category to put yourself in there may be partially one of the reasons why these numbers are going down, as well as less social pressure to affiliate. And also people just maybe, I would say, being cynical about some of these institutions, too. I mean, I, I think the Catholic Church in America has weathered a lot of scandal in recent years, for instance. Are we missing any other ones that people commonly use to interpret this situation? The other one that comes up a lot is politics. So Christian Smith, a sociologist at Notre Dame, says there's sort of like three major changes, the Cold War, 9-11, the beginning of, of the war on terror, and the, the longer impacts of the rise of the Christian rights. And he basically argues that sort of people increasingly understands religion to be a political category, and that makes it a problem for people who don't share the politics that they perceive go along with Christianity. So even though they might be fine with Jesus, they won't say that they're Christian because they think what you're really asking, do they vote a certain way or support certain political issues? The weird thing about this category is that the groups that are most affiliated with those politics are not the one that's are not the ones that are declining. <laughs> they are not declining as rapidly. So there's a little bit of thing of like liberal people are leaving liberal churches or disaffiliating with liberal churches or left of center churches where you know politics might be more likely to lean left, and they're leaving it because they're mad about not liberal churches but politically conservative churches. So that's that's a strange thing, and I think some people have pushed back on Kristen Smith with this argument. But that's the other sort of main one is like how do churches and Christians' political activities change the way we understand these categories and identities. Thinking that through, there's a classic book from the 70s, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. The thesis of, I think it was Kelly was the author. I, I, I don't think uh, the religious right had had uh, made its noises yet. The, mo the most pertinent thing was this notion that conservatives actually stand for something. They have a clear sense of direction of where they want their churches to go. They have a certain set of beliefs they expect you to adhere to and to live by. And I'm just, I was just wondering if that somehow plays a role here. I, I wouldn't say that liberal churches don't have a specific agenda and specific beliefs. So that doesn't, doesn't quite apply. That argument's pretty common, but it has some problems. I mean, the, the argument is that like identifying with a church has to do something for you socially. It can maybe, you know, 
help you with contracts, with uh, contacts networking for your business, or it can just sort of mark a distinction between you and the broader culture. And the idea is that conservative cultures are conservative churches are, are countercultural and thus serve this sociological function for people. And there's a reason to go to church to sort of reaffirm your identity and reassure yourself for the kind of cultural struggle that you live in every day. I have, I don't quite think this works. Partly, you know, like you look in the places where conservative churches are thriving tend to be conservative places. Like if that argument was true, you would expect Southern Baptists in New England to be booming and Southern Baptists in Alabama to be really struggling because there's not a lot of distinction between the broader culture. And that's just not quite the case. It's also true if you look at some of the liberal or left-leaning denominations, tends to be when they make a bolder cultural stance that they start losing members. So the Episcopal Church in the 60s is very much identified with most of the members of the Supreme Court, lots and lots of presidents, like it's just church of, of a lot of power and prestige. And then they start doing some controversial things like making statements that all homosexuals are children of God is a, is a big fight they have in the mid 60s. And that quite upsets a lot of people and they lose a bunch of numbers and it sort of starts the decline that we see in that church today. And you would think that like taking controversial stand, like if the thesis is right, taking controversial stands should have increased their numbers and it seemed to have the, the opposite effect. So I'm not, I'm not totally persuaded by the cultural conflict, cultural tension thesis of church adherence. But you do hear that pretty frequently. That is a pretty common explanation. That well, the other thing that falls short is that there's degrees of conservatism. If you become too conservative, you end up narrowing your base so much that that's what you call cults or... <laughs> extremely minority conservative religions that hardly appeal to anybody, even though they're super countercultural and super committed to certain ideas and super committed to living out a life in a certain way. It does seem like the, the landscape is a lot more complicated. Pretty much at every level, if you dig down, it just gets really, really complicated and you stop understanding <laughs> at some point now, what as anything a, means anymore. Yeah, as a, as a former pastor, I will, I will add one thing. Again, it's not something you can actually prove. And that is, I do think at some level, there is a rejection of Christianity because, or less and less interest in Christianity, because Christianity is just less and less attractive to people because Christians in the U.S., me included, okay, I'm not pointing the finger at other people, don't live a lifestyle that seems to actually attract people <laughs> or say to them, you are obviously doing, believing or living in such a way that it's remarkably different that I can even pay attention to you. I doubt if any of my, any acquaintances I have that aren't Christians might not even know I'm a Christian unless it comes up in conversation. So at some level to be, you know, a little prophetic here, whatever. I do think uh, it's Mark, I think you just indictment. summed it up. You it's, just said to be prophetic, whatever. <laughs> that is exactly. Well, I don't, I hate, uh, as anyone who knows me, I, I, I think speaking prophetically is such a, it's such a problem believe me. <laughs> I, th I think many people look at these changing numbers, many evangelicals look at these changing numbers and see a sort of great opportunity for evangelism. Christians are losing, white Christians in particular, are losing a kind of cultural dominance. And we're, we're losing the ability to just kind of assume that people are like us and people understand us and people accept us. But for the purposes of sharing what's different about Christianity, that's not a bad thing. That actually could could be a kind of opening for all sorts of evangelism and even revivalism. Yeah, and I think based on some of the comments you made earlier, I think we do need to understand that human beings in general, but Americans in particular, are still religious at some level. There are hardly any atheists or agnostics as compared to the whole, that there is some, some awareness of a spiritual reality above and beyond or even deeper within our world. I just had an experience at a party full of a bunch of millennials who uh, on the surface appear to be people who have no interest in religion whatsoever. But as soon as the topic came up, it was just like fascinating to them. And it was pretty eclectic, <laughs> but there was an absolute uh, conviction that the world is more than the material. And what it is is kind of a mystery and they have some hints and some not hints. But I think that's a tremendous opportunity for Christians myself. 
And we're not seeing a disappearance of religious questions in America. We're not seeing a disappearance of spiritual longing. We're seeing people distrust the Christian identity or or not fi- not feel like that label ha- means anything to them anymore. And we're seeing people, you know, struggle with affiliation or, or not like affiliation and, and sort of church membership or creedal subscription anymore. We're absolutely not seeing a secularization and just a disappearance of religious questions. Nor a lack of interest in the person of Jesus if they have the opportunity to encounter him in the Gospels. Christ still appear is just as enigmatic, fascinating, mysterious, attractive person. And that's often the way a lot of people are doing evangelism on the front lines will say, well, let's not talk about the church. Let's not talk about doctrine. Why don't you just look at the person of Jesus and see what, tell me what you think. That's an awfully good inroad in a lot of, a lot of cases. With the, the bro- want to say one last thing on, on, on that point. I think the broader, the book that I think of sometimes with this sort of broader trend is Stanley Hauerwas and Will Williman in Resident Aliens. But like they talk about the, the broader changes in America are about the changing contexts in which we believe. And what we're losing as as white evangelicals in particular is just a dominance and authority, but we're not losing the power of Jesus or the gospel message or even an audience for those. You know, they talk about being shocked growing up in the South when suddenly movie theaters were open on Sunday and this scene is a sort of great, a great secularization of their town. And the question is, well, well, but is that what you were is that what you were worried about in your town? Was the existence of movie theaters being open on Sunday? Like maybe maybe losing a cultural norm of nominal Christianity isn't such a bad thing for, for making the argument about the the power and importance of Jesus and the gospel message in modern lives. Yeah, in a lot of respects, Willimon and Howard Ross were ahead of their time. They wrote the book in 89. So they're basically addressing a situation that the rest of us are not aware of for another 20 years, perhaps. I do get a kick out of the title, Resident Aliens, because I lived as a resident alien in Germany for (laughs) for eight years, and it was a much weirder and and more peculiar experience than when movie theaters were or weren't open. But anyway, it's still a good book to go back to. This episode is brought to you by Church Law & Tax. Church Law & Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Well, let's actually transition to that. I'm wondering if you can talk about what religious decline looked like in Western Europe slash Germany and maybe compare and contrast that to what it looks like in the U.S. big difference in Europe is the sort of official role that religion has in most countries. In the U.S., of course, we have disestablishment, and so there are lots of churches and lots of what's called religious competition, and there's a religious marketplace. So you have, if you go back to the colonial period, each state, each colony would have had an official religion. And after the revolution, there would be this sudden burst of options and people competing, as the historians say, for souls and purses. And you never really get that in in Europe. I mean, there are obviously Methodists in England and Pietists in Germany, but there's always an official religion that really defines what religion is and really defines sort of the public category of religion. Religious identity 
it's really different. It, it has both like very dramatically declined in Europe. That was my experience. But there was also just a really different sense of what part of your religious identity is public and what part is private. In Germany, people would be Protestant in the same way that someone in the U.S. might be from Texas. Like it doesn't tell you about their deepest held beliefs necessarily. It tells you sort of where they come from and some sort of like historical fact about them. Where in the U.S., religion has so much been a choice. And even as we see these numbers change, it's still about individual choice, that that makes it much more significant in individual lives and much more sort of a a vibrant conversation rather than just kind of the backgrounds, you know, or in the case of Germany, something that actually shows up on your ID. Because of its opt-in nature here in the U.S.? That makes you sense. can you can opt out of it in Germany. Most many very most people didn't. Well, I'm trying to see if that's right. My experience in Germany was that the Protestant we were in a Protestant part of the country. You could opt out of the Protestant church, and that would mean that you didn't pay church taxes. Like the taxes that went to support the church were only for people who were registered as members of that church. But people would never go to church, but not opt out specifically so that they could get married in the church and then have a funeral in the church. Like those were the two sort of functions. And the churches also administer hospitals and those sorts of things. So people would continue to be members as a kind of charitable gesture. Religion just had a much more of an official official capacity. Yeah, I don't want to get too in the weeds about Western Europe and socialism and taxes and all that type of stuff. But I, I will say that Pew did a study a couple of years ago where they surveyed a lot of European churches that do have these types of, I don't know, to call them stirps church state taxes. And most of the people that they surveyed were very, very, very fine paying these taxes, even if they never went to church. So I think there's a lot to parse out there, but it is an an interesting situation. Whereas when we're talking about opt-in, again, I think that is probably maybe what is showing here is that we've been talking about... I don't know, larger trends with institutions these days. And in general, Americans, maybe more than ever before, are less willing to opt in to different groups than they have ever have been. So, I mean, I think we've seen this. And that actually isn't just a religious thing. Like that's also true with social clubs and Republicans and Democrats, for instance, subscriptions, Mm -hmm. the Elks. Yeah, that's a that's a much larger issue. So I was at the Religion News Association conference last month and um, one of the panelists on one of the panels basically made an argument that back in the day, the entire way that Americans were taught to participate in democracy and civil society was through churches, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if I agree with that or not, but I thought that was an interesting argument that was made. So I'm wondering, Daniel, maybe we can start to kind of talk more about the ramifications about all this. You know, is religion just another institution or is it that as people are becoming less religious, it's actually accelerating institutional decline overall? I'm not totally sure how to choose between those two choices. All right. There's a, if there's another option, I'm not, you know, don't listen to the Morgan binary. In column B. Yeah. I mean, I do think part of the power of these institutions, churches, but just also community institutions, institutions that were really grounded in the place that you lived, was that put us in contact and conversation and, and commitment, really, with people who disagreed with us. The, the alternative to these kinds of institutions is increasingly ideologically aligned lives, right? When we sort ourselves on social media or we decide, you know, what of the million TV stations we're going to watch, we get to like choose based on our affinity for certain ideas. And I think historically, these other organizations, both political parties and churches and other types of social clubs, just mixed us up more and gave us a sense that like, you know, maybe I don't like Democrats, but Joe is all right. Maybe people who are opposed to unions are suspicious fat cats, but, you know, Tammy seems to have a reasonable argument to make. I think that's the transformative aspect. And churches are part of that story. They're not the driver of that story. But that's the like big social fallout that is connected to these changes that I think America is concerned with. 
challenges our, our, our life together in America. It's interesting to talk about all this type of stuff. I, I probably will credit Mark here for teaching me to never look at people in the past as either particularly wicked or particularly angelic with regards to this. So some of me definitely wonders if it's just the reaction that people have to technology and increased mobility like you were talking about before. And I would never underestimate the ability of our minds to just see things in a more consumeristic lens and to just adopt that to all different types of communities that we then realize that we don't have to be a part of if we don't want to, taking some of the tendencies that we've learned from the marketplace and applying it to our relationships with other people. I think we forget, it's really easy to kind of forget how hard it is to be a part of a community, you know, like I go to church and some of those people are really annoying. And some of those people are looking around thinking about all the people who aren't there, but are lying about be there like me. And like, you know, that's, I think we should see as, you know, church going people as Christians, I think we should be able to look at ourselves and see the same inclination that we're seeing across the culture. They're not, they're not different than us. We're, we're, we're all living in the same world and faced with the same attractions and, and repulsions as, as everyone else. But community is hard. Opting out of community is a, is a pretty attractive thing a lot of times, but it's bad for us as individuals and it's bad for the country, I think. Another thing that I wanted to touch on is about immigration. So I've seen immigration particularly invoked around population decline or growth and birth rates. And one thing that it seems like different demographers will say is, you know, if we keep immigration or if we keep the number of immigrants coming here at a very robust level, it'll offset the fact that less Americans, Americans in general, are having fewer children. And I'm just wondering if that also plays out in terms of religiosity in America and if if those kind of bursts end up being pretty short term. I thought it was interesting, for instance, that in the summary from Pew, they mentioned that Hispanics are one of the groups where nuns are growing. That made me wonder, wow, so I presume that many of these communities are coming over and are really devout Catholics or are really devout evangelicos. And then within a generation, their children are becoming more or less picking up on the same type of cultural pattern as their peers. I think that's right. And there's definitely studies that show that, you know, first generation immigrants are different than second and third. They're different in rates of how many children they have and also different in rates of religiosity. Immigration has an effect, but I don't know what the long term effect is. I mean, the the sort of short term effect that you see is that churches that are more ethnically diverse are less likely to decline than churches that are more a majority culture, like churches that are 90, 95, 98% whites are more likely to be shrinking than churches that are 50% white or 60% white. So like contrasting the Assemblies of God, which is quite racially and ethnically diverse, with Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists have been declining. That's, that makes it sound a little bit more like falling into decline. But they've just been they've been getting smaller the last few years where the Assemblies of God has, has not. But whether that's a like long-term strategy of growth or not, I think is kind of an open question. In your mind, is there any reason to think that these trends that we see as far as Christianity declining, that they might reverse themselves or slow down? Or should we kind of expect similar headlines for the next couple decades? My hist- my historian's training tells me, don't predict the future. Exactly. <laughs> But I would I would be surprised if these numbers turn around within a few years. We would definitely need to have a podcast to talk about what's happening if these numbers turn around. I mean, probably for a generation. It just seems that everything's leaning this way. So I don't know. I don't know what lever is big enough right now to change this sort of cultural decline. To make Christianity Uh great again. Well, specifically, I mean, specifically to make nominal Christianity more powerful culturally, like what would have to happen for people to not go to church, but say that they do like that to me, that's the number that we're looking at. It's not it's not a dramatic change in 
evangelicals. It's not a dramatic change in churchgoers, but it is a dramatic change in these sort of looser identifications. I don't know. I don't I don't have an answer to, to, to what would change that. If it happens, we should get back together and talk about it again. I mean, I do think you made an interesting point, Daniel, when you were talking about who ends up leaving the church and how some of it is just kind of being embarrassed by your neighbor, thinking your neighbor thinking that you're cool, which seemed to swing at various times, right? This, I mean, if, if we do live in a very individualistic culture, that's what it's going to come down to, in my opinion, more than like, I don't know, broad. I, surely it's not something that's going to be like legislated or figured out in the political realm. It, it seems like it would have to be something that gives people a sense of social cachet. Some of that will come about. I, it seems to me, now I might be an optimist here, that the idea of rugged individualism and anti anti-institutionalism is heading for a train wreck in a lot of different ways. And I think when that happens, I think society's cohesion will will disintegrate. It's at that point, you know, this is... And you're the optimist here. Well, what I mean is that will lead, that can only lead to someone saying, well, maybe my identity as an individual is not as important as something else. And maybe there are institutions and larger forces that I need to be a part of to really be a fulfilled human being. That type of reorganization orientation. It will happen only after uh, you already see signs of how individualism is crushing our, our ability to have a common conversation in America. And that's most people are distraught about that. There are more and more groups trying to figure out how do we talk to one another about that. So I, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, things might have to get worse before they get better. But I guess I've like you, Daniel, I've seen enough history in my time and read about enough history that no trend is not irreversible. How how and when it will happen? Who knows? And it does seem like those kinds of questions, like, you know, the incredible sort of epidemics of loneliness and people feeling deeply isolated and people being less likely to have strong family connections. Those are all things that churches can speak really powerfully to. And, I, you know, I hear churches talking about these things and considering these things and trying different ways to address these very real problems in people's lives. So yeah, that absolutely could have an effect in the next few years. Well, thanks everyone for your input. I did want to say, if you're interested in a, something that does touch on these themes that we've talked about, there was a recent episode of This American Life, 683, that talked about how you bring people together. I, I just wanted to highlight this episode of This American Life because there's actually an interesting part in there about a democratic club and what happens when some of its leaders end up supporting Trump and the community that becomes tenuous as a result of this. And then one particular African nation that is also trying to work proactively to present, prevent civil war in its country and the great lengths it goes to go about doing that. I just wanted to plug that because it touches on some of the things that we were talking about in here. If you have feedback for us at Christianity Today and us at Quick to Listen, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Also tweet at us at ctpodcasts. Now is the time of the show where I ask you to subscribe to our magazine. Our latest magazine, our November magazine, is out, hot off the press. I don't know, Mark, did you have a chance to read through the whole issue? Actually, I thought about highlighting something from the issue, but I decided to highlight our staff. That is to say, Christianity Today magazine print and online, everyone, just so you know, and I don't take responsibility for these people, is being... Thought about, edited, and written by people like Daniel Silliman and Morgan Lee. And you heard, just heard Daniel and a lot of the wisdom he brings to bear. If you want to encourage this type of journalism, I honestly say, now this, uh, I know I'm the editor-in-chief, blah, 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 but I didn't have any responsibility training either of these people. Add to that people like Jeremy Weber and Kate Shelnut. I think we have some of the finest journalists in America, not just religious journalists, but period. And so I'd encourage you to keep supporting the magazine by subscribing or by donating for that reason. I mean, no one's going to be sad about hearing you praise us. <laughs> All right. But Mark is for real. If you do want to encourage us, a huge way to do that is by subscribing to Christianity Today magazine and opting in to this community that we're a part of. So you can do that by going to orderct.com slash podcast, orderct.com slash podcast. We do get emails from you saying that you have subscribed as a result of listening to this show, and we are super grateful for that. Let's do precious moments where everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy, Mark, you can go first. One of the ways in which I deal with the fact that I wake up in the middle of the night is I kind of made a personal vow that I will continue to read Augustine's The Confessions. <laughs> and sometimes that is wonderful reading. 
And then recently it's been pretty tough going because he goes on and on and on about memory. It's a very philosophical, thoughtful discussion that frankly bored me to tears. So I skimmed it. But then you keep going in Augustine and you run across a passage like this. He's talking about his pre-conversion. And it's such a beautiful poetic passage. The book is written, for you that don't know, it's written as a prayer, essentially a prayer to his his God. Late have I loved thee, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved thee, for behold, thou wert within me, and I outside, and I sought thee outside, and in my unloveliness fell upon those lovely things that thou hast made. Thou wert with me, and I was not with thee. So it's a really, he has these punchy little phrases that just encapsulate so much of the reality of life that God is the creator of beauty, and at one level, it couldn't be possible without God, and yet he it almost distracted him from thinking about God because it was so lovely. And I love that line, thou wert with me and I was not with thee. That strikes me as a good autobiographical statement about most of my life. And thank you, thank God that he's merciful and understands that and is patient with us. So that was my precious moment the other night. And people can find you at your newsletter on Fridays. It is the Galley Report. G-A-L-L-I. You can find it at ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report. Subscribe. There's about 20,000 people who get it. They seem to think it's worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile. I I, uh, link to articles that I find interesting and make commentary on them. That's the sum and substance of it, but it seems to work for a lot of people. All right, Daniel. I was sort of blown away. I think that's not too strong. Blown away by a historical record that was broken this back this last week by Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. They became, let's see, their marriage. They, they've been married longer than any presidents and first lady in American history. I think Saturday, 73 years, three months and 11 days. Wow. Record, wow. which I've, I've been married a little over 10 years and 73. That's that's just an amazing milestone. The previous record was held by George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush until Barbara died a few years back. But yeah, that's just, that's an amazing, that's an amazing 73 years, three months, 11 days. That's impressive. And for all you young and newly and fairly newly married, I'd encourage you to hang in there. Wow. The best, the best years of our, well, the reason why I say that is I've just been surprised at how pleasant our marriage has been the last few years. It seems like you work out a lot of those things you just spent tons of time arguing about, the financial pressures of raising a family, dealing with kids. Somehow, yeah, the light, the golden years are really golden. It's really, really quite amazing. Daniel, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter, um, at Daniel Silliman. That's where I am most often, most seen on the internet. Also at Christianity Today. All right. My precious moment is shout out to some of my friends that actually listen to my podcast regularly and tell me that they do, if only for some of the life updates. But this weekend, we hung out going around to different spots in Chicago. It's one of our favorite weekends of the year because we get to go into all these different types of buildings. So I went into this creative hub and got to visit it. I went to an art gallery in my neighborhood. I went to this food incubator business place. I went to a prestigious Catholic school. I just love exploring the city of Chicago, and this is one of my favorite weekends of the year to do that. It's also a great opportunity to explore the architecture of downtown Chicago, which is one of the most, the city itself is one of the most famous architectural feats. Absolutely. And it's great when it's just made available to the public. So that is called Open House Chicago. Always in October. They do it in New York. I don't know other American cities they do it in. All right. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. You can find this podcast on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We are there. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.